Hey, this is Dewey from Pure Pleasure on Jabberjaw Media. I wanted to tell you guys about the Patreon for the show. It's called the Pleasure Seekers Club, and there's two levels. There's the $5 level and the $10 level. And all this is, guys, is to help support the show, help support the cost of putting the show out, um, you know, time spent uh, building the show, hosting costs, travel costs to do the in-person interviews that you guys like so much. Um, it all costs money. And I always try to find the best deal for sure uh, because I do have a day job as well. But having that support on the Patreon is definitely going to help bring more in-person interviews, more travel, more uh, updated uh, graphics, hosting, websites, all that stuff. So, um, And if you like the show, $5 a month or $10 a month really helps out. I know it's kind of uh, an interesting thing with the Patreon when something's already free. Uh, but it is always going to be free. But if you want to support the show a little bit more, I'd absolutely appreciate it. Uh, you can pay either $5 or $10 a month. We'll try to do some special things for the patrons as well as we go. Um, but it's just a way to support the show in a different way. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you guys coming back week after week. That's the most important thing I can ask for. So definitely go over and check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Once again, that is patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up today and join the community and help out the show. Keep it growing. And I thank you so much. Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. 100 Words or Less is a discussion with people in and around independent music with host Ray Harkins. The show gets in deep with creators and people who've been profoundly influenced by independent music and DIY culture. Upcoming guests include Josh Gogan from 68 and Norma Jean and Cameron from Sorority Noise. With 250 past episodes to dive into, you can't go wrong with 100 Words or Less. Visit 100wordspodcast.com or listen on your favorite podcast app. Are you looking for a new set of scrims or a backdrop for your live show? What about wall flags to have at your merch table or online store? This is Dewey from Pure Pleasure, and I want to tell you about artistflags.com. Artistflags.com has the lowest pricing and best quality around. Their prices start at $119, and they can help you choose the best material and sizes for your band, all while keeping your budget in mind. Use the coupon code PEERFLAG, that's P-E-E-R-F-L-A-G at checkout to get $30 off your next order. Satisfied bands who have used artistflags.com are Dance Gavin Dance, I Prevail, Darkest Hour, Senses Fail, Ice Nine Kills, Lorna Shore, Afterlife, and many more. Check them out today.
What's going on, guys? Welcome to a new week of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpus. I am Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you great content again another week. This week is no exception to that rule. We have Mr. Justin Pearson from Retox, Dead Cross, The Locust, 31G Records, and about a million other bands, and they are all fantastic. So we were really stoked to have Justin on today and uh, had a great chat. Turns out we know a lot of the same people uh, from when I was working at the club and uh, touring days and all that mess. And uh, Mr. Mark Marino, the coolest guy in the world, if he's listening, shout out to Mark, uh, who always let us stay with him in San Diego. Turns out they went to high school together. Um, So that seven degrees of separation thing is uh, closer than you think. But uh, had a great time chatting with Justin. Justin uh, has wrapped the recording of the new Dead Cross record, going to be out on August 4th. Now, Dead Cross... Uh, is Justin and also features Mike Patton, uh, who a lot of you may know uh, is one of the best vocalists in the world. Uh, he's done stuff with Bjork. He's done stuff with uh, tons of bands, runs Epicac Records, Faith No More. I mean, come on. Uh, Dave Lombardo from Slayer is playing drums on that record and in that band. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. You guys definitely need to check that out. It's out August 4th, um, and uh, that's going to be on Epicac, I believe. So, uh First time I saw The Locust was at Loveland here in Portland. You'll hear us talk about it a little bit on the episode. Uh, But all the people at the club that I worked at Loveland were from the San Diego scene. Uh, Antioch Arrow, uh, Heroin, those bands that pretty much started the whole Screamo kind of scene, uh, but definitely get overlooked. And as Justin says, he's got a whole storage unit of stuff from those bands that he'll probably never sell uh, just because it's, it's past. And, uh, you know, fantastic music, uh, Antioch Arrow, uh, Gems of Masochism is on Spotify, actually, if you if you want to go about it that way. But check it out. It's great music. And Justin's been putting out great music and content his whole adult life, um, you know, and puts himself into it. I, like I said on the episode, puts himself in the artwork, puts himself in the music, 100% out there, um, you know. And, and I think it's done rather well for him as far as art goes. Maybe not financially, but I think, uh, like I told him, I mean, he's doing what he wants to do every day. Um, and he took the time out of his day to sit down with me for an hour and and uh, just go over all the old times and, and what's coming up and uh, views on artwork and music and uh, just had a great time. That's one of the best things about this podcast, getting to just cut it up with people that I really admire and, and uh, find interesting. And Justin is uh, definitely one of those people. So big shout out to Justin. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we had a great chat, and we're going to get to it here in just a moment. Uh, we are on peerpleasurepodcast.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, definitely check out the Amazon affiliate link. Help out the show there. Uh, the donate button on the show uh, on the website is also available. Um, definitely hit that up. If you like the show, dollar a month, $2 a month, whatever it's worth to you. Definitely helps us with the costs and keep those down and, and keep the lights on here. So. Uh, once again, rate and subscribe on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and you subscribe, be sure to rate the show, throw a comment on there. That definitely helps us out with chart position, helps us out with everything, and, and lets us know how we're doing. Uh, PeerPleasurePod at gmail.com is the email. Shoot me a line and uh, we'll go from there. Anyways, let's get into our conversation with Mr. Justin Pearson from Retox. <laughs>
Cool, dude. Well, I uh, apologize for the mix-up earlier. I felt so bad. I was at work, and I checked my email, and I was like, wait a minute, what? Oh, wait no a minute. And I was like, oh, fuck. You didn't think I'm the biggest dick in the world. <laughs> no, no, no. no it's weird because, um, you know, like sometimes people are uh, wherever. Like I just did one that was on the East Coast, and I'm actually doing another one on Sunday. Or I did one that was in England. But, um, yeah, so I, it was – Eastern time or Pacific, and I swear you said it was Eastern, but anyhow, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no sweat, man. I I appreciate you uh, being flexible on that and uh, coming on anyway. <laughs> but uh, cool, man. Well, uh, Justin Pearson or JP, whichever you rather go by, but uh, from so many different bands, Three One G Records, uh, The Locust, Retox, uh, Dead Cross. Um, I mean, it's so many to mention. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing decent. Decent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I wanted to start out, uh, how did you make it to San Diego? Were you born there or were you, were you a transplant? Yeah, uh, transplant. I was born in um, in Chicago, actually, and then I grew up in Phoenix. Um, but my mom moved me to San Diego when I was 12. Okay. And uh, how was, I mean, how was childhood for you? Was it rough? Was it, was it smooth? I mean, I know a lot of that has a lot to do with how we, we become adults and, and what we end up doing, but um, how was, how was childhood for you? Was it, was it a rough go? Yeah. I mean, well, it's, 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 it's all speculative, I guess, because you know what, like, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, it could have been worse, you know? I, uh, so I, I mean, I, I would just say like, it was what it was. I, it was weird, you know, it's weird, like, growing up and being a child and, and like, you know, both of my parents were alcoholics and, like, I just kind of thought, like, that was normal. They were both very abusive to each other and stuff. And so I, when I realized that, like, oh, not everybody's parents are drunk and, and, like, beating each other up and shit, then I started realizing, like, this is a trip. You know, and I got a little bit older, like, um, still in grade school and, like, my friends kind of found out that my parents were like that and they'd, like, make fun of me and shit. And so then I then I started realizing, like, oh, it's not – you know, like then I started realizing like what the norm is or whatever. But I think everybody's life, it to some extent, is kind of messed up or whatever. You know, and you just have to deal with it. And it and it does essentially make you who you are. And hopefully, it makes you, you know, a better person. But not always. So anyhow, um, yeah. I mean, it was it was a little it was rough at times, but I made it through it. <laughs> so you you said you had kids make fun of you because your parents were alcoholics and your life was you know rough at home yeah like like it's fucked um, up. oh i mean it, it could have been worse i mean you know kids are ruthless you know they're, they're just like talk shit about like my parents being drunks or like you know be like they'd like like there i had a bunch of friends stay over once and my and my parents got in this pretty pretty bad fight like uh you know like my like my dad would like beat my mom but like my mom sort of provoked it and so it was like a weird thing and so anyhow it happened like one of the nights they stayed there so they all made fun of me at school and you know like the following week and that was kind of a trip but i mean i don't know it could have been worse i guess they could have beat me you know sure so they didn't beat you as mainly just between the two of them and and uh you just had to listen to that and experience that that's rough dude well uh, yeah. I mean, it, it was like a interesting perspective because my dad was murdered when I was 12. And so my mom moved me to San Diego and then I uh, had uh, we had moved in with my mom's new boyfriend who was actually abusive to me and her. And so then then I had like a like a kind of like a different perspective because I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like this guy, 
you know, this guy, this guy also beats me and like hits my dog and shit. I was like, so then I, then I kind of like saw it differently, you know, like I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't think I should be part of this equation, you know? Yeah. Jesus Christ. And so sorry about your dad. I, uh, you know, but when it turned on you, I mean, from what I've gathered through, you know, and I followed your work for, for quite a while, um, you know, but as a person seemed like, you know, very nonviolent person and, uh, didn't seem like you were really into drugs and alcohol either. Um, you know, yeah. is that kind of why is that you kind of went the opposite direction? Well, um, as far as the, the like violent thing, like, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a time and place for violence or aggression or whatever. And I mean, I think, you know, in the last like probably 15 years, I've had to work on myself, like kind of just like getting frustrated and like not being violent, but, um, just not like being able to channel a certain energy and stuff. But, um, you know, the drugs and alcohol stuff, I mean, for one, like, um, I mean, I drank when I was, I started drinking like when I was like 10 or 11 uh-huh. and, uh, but I never really got into drugs much. I couldn't really afford it. And then the few times that I did do drugs, I was like, this is kind of like a, it's kind of like sucks or whatever. Yeah. But I was never like against it necessarily. Sure. And I, and I actually had like a huge opposition to straight edge, um, growing up because there was this, you know, like, like kind of like militant, like. That like straight edge people that I knew for the most part had this like sort of militant side to them. And I, you know, I was like, I guarantee you in 10 years, like all of you guys are going to be drinking or whatever. And like with the exception of like Rob Moran or like maybe one other person, everybody was drinking or smoking weed or something. So, you know, I just thought it was like, I was, I just thought people needed to be a little bit more kind of rational and not so, um, I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was just a weird thing. Like to, to, so like, I, I really like could like, I guess, I mean, I don't know if like you would call it influence, but like my influences came from like the whole spectrum, you know, like mm-hmm. drug and alcohol abuse as well as like just being like sort of an asshole, you know, and like against other people for not doing what you wanted to do or, or what, you know, what, what they want, like, you know, like drinking or like, you know, people getting like beat up for like, smoking weed or whatever like that was just it was weird you know I, I didn't really think that either one of them was justified yeah i i definitely understand we were on tour we used to get the over on the east coast the hardliners there's there's this gang called Hellaware or some bullshit like that that they, they all wore like basketball jerseys and came in and cleared out the whole show and then tried yeah. to beat up our bass player who walked down the block out of respect to smoke a cigarette but <laughs> you know it was fucked up that whole scene yeah. and uh you know it can put a pretty big chip on your shoulder about too, but um, you know, when did, when did music come into play for you through all this? Well, when I was younger and I was like, into like got into skateboarding, like around age 10, I, I really got into like all those thrasher skate rock comps. And I kind of, I kind of like was into a, a, a few different kinds of music. Like I got like, so the thrasher comps, you know, they had like, like, I don't know, um, septic death and stuff on him. So I was, in, I was into that, but I was obviously like into like the misfits and the cramps and the sex pistols. But I also like was really into the bands like, um, yellow and six, six Sputnik. So, so I was into like a lot of weird kind of electronic shit. So 
it was it was like sort of a I don't know, like an eclectic mix of, of, of music. But even like before that, like when I was much younger, like um, eight, like, yeah, like eight or nine, I guess, like I was really into like Van Halen and, and like Michael Jackson and stuff at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, it's kind of like always been there, but I, I really, um, I got like fully into music. Like when I was probably 12, I just got like, I got obsessed with um, the Sex Pistols and, and then, you know, by the time I turned 15, I started my first band. So, I mean, it, I think it was kind of like in the cards or whatever, or in the stars or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you see, so you, I mean, you were pretty much into, I mean, rock music from the beginning. I mean, with, with Van Halen and all that, where, um, I guess Michael Jackson, pop music for sure. But, yeah. um, and so that was struggle, right? Your, your first band that you started? Yeah, correct. Okay. And then, so, but soon after that, that's when you started 3-1-G, correct? We, I mean, with, um, uh swing kids yeah um well so i i was fortunate with struggle you know because i think you know right off the bat we were doing records with ebullition and they had such a they had such a great sort of they had like a great standard and like they were very um honest and they weren't like like they were kind of like you know you wanted like a certain kind of art or like you wanted a qual a, you know you could expect like a quality from like the the kind of record that they would release mm-hmm. so like um you know and and it was just like a very impressive label so then then like all these options you know options like started popping up like hey you want to do this split record you want to do this and that so struggle ended up doing this split seven inch with undertow on on um, our friend Scott Vibin's label and it was kind of weird. Because changed and it was it was pressed on like kind of a shitty quality vinyl like it sounded pretty bad and and but mainly like the the artwork thing was a real bummer because the cover was a picture of our drummer jose getting arrested at this may day international workers um, protest in los angeles and it was like a pretty it was a pretty like you know substantial photo it's like the cover of the la times that that week or that day or whatever mm-hmm. and and for whatever reason you know, the, the label that released that seven inch, um, decided to not use the photo, but to like have like a watercolor painting of the photo. And I, and I was like, what the fuck? Like if you didn't know what the original photo was, it just looked like shit, you know? And so that was like a kind of a big deal for us. And then, and then, so like shortly after that swing kids formed and we released our first seven inch on this label called kidney room. And, and they also kind of like just had like really crappy quality um covers and vinyl and it's it just didn't sound that great and and um and then they made t-shirts you know without us like okay in the artwork they had like the label's name on it and I, and I and I just thought like man this is crazy like we you know we could do this ourselves and so then so then like I, I was you know so then the first um 31G release was actually an unbroken 7 inch and and at the same time, it was funny because I, I wanted to like kind of have like a higher standard of quality record. And the weird thing is, Eric Allen, who was kind of the one that was like spearheading the seven inch that I was releasing, like wanted it to be like really shitty and like totally <laughs> like like you know, like photocopied. And, and so I was like, what the fuck? Like this is weird because I want to go against all that. But he was like, you know, Unbroken was doing all their stuff with New Age, so all their stuff was very glossy and it looked very nice. And he wanted it to look like you know, punk or like gravity records or something. So it was funny cause I was, had this little bit of like conflict, you know, but, um, 
but regardless, so I put it out and I was psyched that that was our first release. And then, and then I ended up reissuing the Swing Kid seven inch as the second three one G release, how it should have been. So it was, you know, and then I just realized like I, I could do like at least that bad of quality or or better, you know. And, uh-huh. and I was, and so I did. And, and then I kind of, and then it kind of just like went down the wormhole of like ridiculous, you know, like five inch picture discs or square seven inches or whatever it is. And then, it, and then that was, that was how, that was, that was, the, that was the way I went with that label. But, but yeah, so I, I mean, it started pretty early. I mean, I, the first, the first release that three, one G put out was, um, I think I, I was 19, you know? And so like, um, you know, I was, um, just sort of out of high school and like, um, you know, I'd, I like found out like all these ways to like kind of scam everything. Like I was getting all the covers printed for free, and and um, at the time we had like been stealing um, postage, and <laughs> you know, know, like we, it was weird. Like we were like uh, adult, you know, and not to badmouth um, Scott Bybin with Bloodlink Records, but he was like a, a, the person that turned me on to like a lot of scams. So we would like we had all these ways of like stealing stuff, and so you know we would like kind of fund records or tours or, or all kinds of shit like you know at, at like the expenses of like corporations you know like uh so it was it was an interesting it's an interesting thing to be part of for sure yeah dude <laughs> i'm on the straight and narrow now yeah i, avo- I avoided jail and, and stuff so <laughs> well that and i was gonna ask you what i mean you've been with 31g for so long I mean, what was the worst mistake you think you made in the learning process of starting that label, or or even running that label to this point? Um, that's a pretty good question. I I think I've learned like a majority of the mistakes over the years. I mean, one of them was like, I don't know, like at one one of the well, one of the main things was like at one point I had um, sort of like took out a lot of credit for the label and, and, and I assuming that it would grow and it was kind of around the time when CDs were still selling and we also had this like manufacturing deal with uh, Erica Records so like they were kind of just like pumping out like a lot of shit like not a lot of releases but like you know they would do like 7,000 copies of something you know like we don't we fucking definitely don't need more than like 1000, you know? So like, I mean, even to this day, I still have a storage space full of stuff, you know? So, so that was like, that was probably part of the problem, but like nobody really could foresee the future. You know, there was like, there was like sort of like this downfall of CDs and then there was like the downfall of, you know, the music industry in general. And everyone was just kind of like file sharing. And fortunately like vinyls kind of come back and like, things still sell but like you know it's an interesting question because i would like to just make a joke and say like oh my my you know my biggest mistake is starting the label you know and like um you know that's that's funny in itself i guess you know and there's there's truth in it but at the same time it's like you know at the time like none of us knew what we were doing nobody knew i mean even like people like sunny k you know like who has how now does not run GSL or other, other labels that have folded, you know, mm-hmm. like we just did what we did and we, and we did it because it was a necessity, you know, I mean, it, it, it will like our perception of what a necessity was, you know, like it was the survival of, of what we were trying to create artistically. And it, and it, and it was to me, I think like the, the labels at that time were, 
just as important as a lot of the bands. I mean, it was it was sort of like this interesting thing because now I look back and I realize that like 31G might not be, uh, you know, hold like value as far as like, you know, a, a business should. Like, you know, we don't have stocks or like people, like we don't make money. But like the name 31G and what it associates with, like with a lot of people has value. I mean, it has like credibility. And, and so that's something that's like, I think, uh, a more interesting thing to kind of address because it, it, it like again goes back to like it's almost as important as like the music in itself because it was like it made this like sort of community or family so where people like kind of all resonated or or like you know sort of like found this like realm you know in like the music world or art world like oh this is this thing this is like what we identify with and so it, again, like going back to branding, which also has like a negative context to it. You know, when you talk about branding, you think about like fucking Pepsi or something like that, you know, sure. but it's, it's not, that's not, I mean, it's branding in the sense that like there's a name and it like says something, you know, I mean, it's not a band. It's not, you know, it's not even like one group. It's like a, a shitload of people all over the world with different musical styles, but like, but like come together as one on like one very specific level, you know, this mm -hmm. like creative level. Um, and it's an interesting thing too, because a lot of people like would say like, Oh, that's got the three one G sound, but like, you know, and I, and like, I've heard that my whole, the whole time I've ran the label and I, and I, and I, and I want I always want to say like, what's that? Because like, yeah. you know, we, like, I'd always like reference like Quintron and, and cattle decapitation. Like get, tell me where the fucking three one G sound is, is in that, you know, because you, you have two completely opposite, you know, sounding artists. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's a weird thing, but I'm psyched that it existed and I'm glad it existed. And like all the like, I mean, fuck every day I, I work my ass off. Like I have so much shit to do every, excuse me, every single day. And, uh, I don't even get paid for it, you know? So it's a, it's a trip. It's weird, but like, it's kind of like, you know, ties in with my existence, I guess. Yeah, and that's so that's strange. So I mean, you're you're doing all these bands. You have the label, but the label's not making money. Uh, but it's more at this point like a labor of love. Like you're kind of a curator in as uh, of sorts of the whole. I mean, that's weird that they say a three one G sound because it is extremely varied. And I mean, I had a roommate that bought one of those drum buddies from Quintron and uh, still uses it to this day in his oh, bands yeah. and stuff. And that's some cool shit. And then you have like Get Hustle, and it's like. Who sounds like Get Hustle? Like yeah. it, you know. And I was gonna bring that up because I, I didn't know we knew so many people in common until, like the mid two thousands when you guys came through town with Locust, and uh, I was working in between tours at this venue called Loveland with Mac Man and Aaron Montaigne and, uh, you know, basically Antioch Arrow. And yeah. uh, I had no idea they were. I I didn't know who Antioch Arrow was. I didn't know they were in it. And we're watching all these bands come through, and they're just like, oh, God, more of the same shit. And they kind of started that whole scene. Yeah. And I had no idea. So when Locusts come through town, they're like, man, okay, we got to get this food and this food. It was like a family reunion, it seemed like. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of watching it from the sidelines because I was a fan of the band, and I didn't know you know who was in it or what, what, what was what, but kind of learned through that. And... Uh, Mac Mann is actually the one we were watching Smegma at uh, Loveland. And uh, I don't know if you've heard that band, but they had a lot of homemade instruments and stuff, and they've been around forever. And I was sitting there just bashing my head in the wall like, this is terrible. What is this? 
And Mac was basically took swizzle sticks off the bar, and he's like, "All right, look at this," and he threw it on the bar, the the pack of sticks, and it just went, you know, ding, 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 ding you know. And he's like, "That was music right there." What you think you know about music is completely different, and it completely changed my whole outlook on music. And yeah. I, I was doing some research for this interview, and I saw you'd said something similar. You know, you can just clap your hands, and that's music. And you can, you know, um, that kind of three one G for me kind of encapsulates that because there's so many varied things on there that really, you know, kind of stretch your imagination or your your view of music. I think. Um, and that's been awesome to to check all that stuff out over the years, and uh, I it sucks that it's not making money. But I was what I was going to ask is, what do you do for? Do you have a day job on top of that, or do you make enough from touring with all these bands to stay afloat? Uh, well, I, I had worked at this, um, like I, I worked at this uh, like this like gay nightclub for a while as a bar back, and it was. I worked there for about eight years and I made, I made a pretty good amount of money. Um, I would like make good tips and stuff. And like, they would always let me go on tour. And, um, it was, it was, um, very suitable for, for my lifestyle because for one, it like was not part of like the world that I kind of surrounded myself with. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like no one knew, like, I mean, occasionally someone would be like, what the fuck you're in the locust and you, and you're working as a bar back, you know, like shit like that would happen, but it was pretty rare. But like, um, I felt like comfortable there and I felt that it was like a good place for me to sort of have be my, you know, main source of income. And then I would go on tour and things would, you know, I would like sometimes make money or usually lose money or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I ended up quitting though about a year and a half ago because, um, a bunch of different reasons. I fucked up my arm pretty bad. So like when you bar back, you have to wash a lot of dishes and like carry a lot of shit. And so like I had, I had messed up the tendons in, in one of my elbows. And so it was affecting, um, it was, it was right when Headwind City was playing uh, or recording, uh, our, our last album. And I was, um, I was like, dude, this is bad. And I started kind of freaking out thinking like, I'm going to wreck my arm and not be able to play bass anymore. And, um, and then, there was a lot of other things too. Like also I was fucking my ears up because it was, um, you know, like, so they were open, you know, like from 9 PM to 2 AM and it was like constant, you know, EDM, like very loud. And so, and I wore earplugs, but it was still messing my hearing up. And, and then also just like getting off of work at three thirty in the morning. So it was like, it was just physically taxing. Mm -hmm. So I, I quit and, um, uh, shouldn't, I probably shouldn't have quit. Um, but I did. Um, and I thought, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to figure out a way to make this work and, and not work there. And also too, like I turned 40 and I was like, I was like, you know what? Like, I feel kind of weird, like being a 40 year old, like cleaning up like a 21 year old's vomit, you know? And I was like, <laughs> uh, you know, and like, I was like, I've never had anyone clean up my vomit except my mom when I was a child. And like, I just thought like, this is fucking pretty weird. But like, you know, it was humbling and I, and I, and I made good money. So at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I'll clean up vomit, but it's fine because like it was a pretty absurd job and I was pretty psyched on a lot of the aspects of the culture and, and a lot of my friends that were there, I thought were just really brilliant. Um, I think that the, the gay community was, was just very inspiring, you know? And, um, uh, so anyhow, like I, but I ended up quitting, um, and just figured out all these random ways to hustle. Um, and it's, it's been, pretty stressful because like sometimes I'll have a decent amount of money. Sometimes I won't like I weird jobs, like, you know, like anything from like, 
making a video for PBR or, you know, going and doing a cartoon voiceover for um, Uncle Grandpa or like just all these like kind of weird like random things would would like pop up and it would like give me a little bit of mon money to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and pay for my dog's vet bills and stuff like that. And so then I would kind of just like scrape by. So I'm still in that that world of like scraping by. Um and it looks pretty grim, but I mean, I don't know, like I have, for whatever reason, this is like pretty rare. I have like a, a few months off and that's what I'm tripping out on because once August hits, um, this band Dead Cross that I have has a new album coming out. We're going to start touring. And, and so like, I'm kind of looking towards that. Like I got to just sort of survive until August and then I'll have some income again, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. it's just weird. Like it's just a strange, um, it's just constant hustling, you know? I mean, I'm always just barely making it, <laughs> yeah. you know? But, but, like, I try not to stress about it because, like, I'll get a random royalty check in the mail or, like, um, I don't know. Like, weird things just kind of happen every now and then. I'm like, fuck, that's cool. I just got some money or whatever. But then I do stupid shit, like, I go buy, like, the most impractical car I could probably ever buy and, and fucking... <laughs> I have this 1967 Riley Elf, and it's like, you know, if that thing breaks down, it's always like 500 bucks to fix or yeah. whatever. And it's like, oh, shit, I probably should have bought like a real car, not like a crazy one or whatever. Um, so it's just things like that, you know. I don't know. Sure. And, I mean, you've been you've been a huge part of the San Diego scene for so long. I, I was curious on – it's such a beautiful place. I love San Diego. I always love going there. It's just chill, relaxed. Uh, we'd stay with our buddy Mark Marino. Uh, yeah. I think you guys know each other too. I'm pretty sure. We went to high school, yeah. Yeah, you got coolest guy in the world, literally. Yeah. No yeah. questions. And uh, he'd take us around and we'd go to PB and go to his, his grandma's restaurant or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone's <laughs> relaxed. But some of the most intense, angry, aggressive music comes from San Diego. And I was wondering why you think that is. It, it seems like there's just it just not a care in the world. But yeah, that's a it's a really interesting observation because it does sound kind of ironic, you know, when you when you when you you know if you were to think of like you know the Locust or Crossed Out or you know even like Heroin or Amenity or whatever, like a lot of bands that have come out of here, you know, you, you know, um, it's it's weird because it's a tourist place. It's very transient. It's like the city's set up. Okay. There's two things. The city's set up for, for kind of like rich white people. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the aspects that's weird. Um, and, and then it's also set up for the military. So there is this like very weird, like sort of like police state vibe here, you know, because it, they try to keep everything like very glossy and, and like looking nice you know, SeaWorld and shit because like they don't, you know, you don't, they don't want to see like the migrant workers or they don't want to see like the police brutality or they don't want to see, you know, I don't know, like the poverty or the homelessness or like the homeless vet rate that is like incredible in this city. You know, they don't want to see that shit. They want to see like palm trees and, you know, sports cars and fucking surfing and shit like that. And mm -hmm. it's weird because so it kind of creates this like weird, not like tension, but like this sort of, um, I don't know, like, I don't know what the word would be, but like, it, like an undercurrent kind of, of just, 
Maybe, yeah. And then, and then another thing too, like when we were all growing up, like there was no like sort of platform for art. It was like, there was no use to play. There was no like, hey, there's this like thriving music scene. I mean, for the younger people, you know, we had the Che Cafe and that was about it. I mean, occasionally there'd be other venues that would pop up, mm-hmm. but for the most, for the most part, we had to like really hone in and make something happen with nothing. And that, that was the weird thing is because, so house shows were like really popular and then just random weird shit, like setting up on, you know, on like a top of a parking garage and having a show or having a show in the sewer underneath the freeways. Like we would just kind of figure out ways to have, you know, these sort of like communal events and it was, and it was done without any help from anyone, you know, it wasn't like we had a rad venue and this is what you should do. Rent a rec hall or whatever. Like you just couldn't fucking do it. And so it was like just the weirdest shit would happen, you know, and, and it would make it a little bit more special and it would make it a little bit more like something you would like see in a movie or read in a book, you know, you're like, this is, this is like dangerous or, or like just totally weird shit that like doesn't normally happen. And so I think that might've kind of that like aspect translated into a lot of the music, you know, because also too, like you had a lot of bands, you, you, it couldn't be like, I get, I'm assuming like, you know, uh, you know, like on the East coast, like you had like East coast hardcore and like all the bands kind of like fit together, you know, like, Mm -hmm here you didn't really have that aspect it was like here we were like all right we're gonna have like you know every anybody that wants to play this show can fucking play it you know and so then you'll have like just you know like like a good reference for me was like i remember going to the che cafe to see heroin play and i was really excited to see heroin and uh the opening band was this um this jazz quartet like a like a um, traditional jazz quartet, and it was an all-you-can-eat spaghetti dinner, you know, <laughs> and it was vegan, you know, and it was like yeah. those were all these cool things that kind of happened, and it was like on UCSD campus, who's like pretty notorious for like a lot of fucked up shit, like um, you know, sort of dealing with like, um, well now like dealing with like, um, like production of like drones for like you know, military drone strikes and Uh like they had a thing with like animal testing. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, and it's, and it's in UCSD, it's like next to La Jolla and and Torrey Pine. So it's like, it's like in this like sort of like rich, very wealthy area of of town. And it was like, it was just like a sort of strange, I don't know, like mix of stuff, if that makes sense. And so I I think it like kind of people were able to draw from, all kinds of different elements. It wasn't like, all right, we're a hardcore band. Like we got to follow suit and be like these other hardcore bands. It was like, all right, we're going to just create a band and we can do whatever the fuck we want. And it doesn't matter, you know? And that, and that was like kind of the cooler part, I think for, for me and for a lot of us, you know, we were able to like kind of just do whatever we wanted. I mean, I remember like being 15 or 16 and, um, struggle was asked to play this, like, Earth Day benefit at this place called Campland on the Bay, and it was like this campsite. Like, it was weird. I mean, a lot of people live there in in like trailers and shit. And like, we played with this reggae band um, called the Cardiff Reefers, and we played with it was us, Cardiff Reefers, and Jella Biafra like gave a lecture, you know. Uh-huh. And it was like, like my mom went and shit, you know. And but it was and it was like punks and there was like regular people that were there on vacation. It was like this fucking weird mix of stuff. 
and it was like this thing about the environment and Earth Day, and it was, and it was like, kind of cool because that stuff. I think that weird, like, sort of like absurd mix of elements wouldn't normally happen in most places. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's San Diego to me, and it still feels like that. It still feels like very weird, and I mean, it's different now. Everything's different now, but um, it still feels like a little strange, which I think is good, you know. Sure. Sure. It's and, and we always looked at it as the more laid back LA, like, well, I'd love to live in San Diego. I'd never live in LA, but it kind of seems like the perfect storm with, and that's interesting the way you put it, because I had a completely different view of from the outside, but it seems like since, you know, shows were, you know, so under, under the radar and had to be creative with things that really no one would be half-assing it on the band side because they either really wanted to do it. Um, and then, the fact that there wasn't anything, it seems like the whole group of people watching the show would be a lot more receptive to interesting ideas than they would be in a town that had tons of venues to go see whoever. Um, you know, it just seems like a perfect storm that was like right at the right time. Yeah, that's a that's a good point for sure. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to ask just real quick on the locust. I know it's way far back, but I was always you know curious on this. Is I mean you. You're in very expressive bands. I mean, very just out there, you know, uh, like no holds barred. It seems like you put everything into it. But in The Locust, you were wearing a mask and an outfit for, for some of the time, at least. I don't know. I don't remember if it started with the outfits. But um, did you feel different on stage being with your identity hidden? Um, did you feel like you could express yourself differently or did it trigger things in you that you don't get, say, in retox? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, for one, it's, like, completely different uh, artistically. But the band started out, like, for the lack of a better term, as a regular band. And then we kept we kept getting a lot of, like, criticism about the way we looked. Sort of like how, I guess, I don't know if you remember, but, like, Heart Attack would, like, kind of criticize Antioch Arrow for, like, looking like mods and, and like, you know, stuff like that. So we were getting a lot of criticism for the way we looked and it was, mm -hmm. it was very weird to us. And, you know, I started like, I think we would like, would see like reviews of, of our records and it, would, and it would just be completely about like our hair and, and our, you know, the pants and mm -hmm. whatever. Like, and it was like, what about the music? You didn't <laughs> fucking mention the music at all. And then there was this like, this like kind of at the time like a, this magazine called Hit It or Quit It that came out and it was like a big deal and there was like this roundtable discussion about how the Locust is the worst band in hardcore and I, I was like fuck this is crazy and like question was how like there was like this one girl saying how we were like making it impossible for fat kids to succeed in hardcore which I was just fucking crazy and then they were like talking about how we like put all this effort into the clothes we wore and I was like this is crazy because. I mean, for the most part, like, I mean, I remember like Gabe and I would like go shoplifting, you know, because we couldn't really afford nice clothes or we like would only shop at thrift stores or like, it, you know, we just dressed like free or like cheap. Yeah. And it was, like, it was just how we dressed and like, really an issue either. Like it wasn't, I don't know. It was like a really fucking stupid thing. And so in like, kind of like context to that and like i don't know we decided like on a whim like we i mean we were we were like irritated and we were like at this thrift store and they had these furry vests and i was like dude we should buy these vests and we should just like start wearing these furry vests <laughs> and so we're like all right that sounds like a fucking great idea and so like 
we 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 wore them, and it felt like rad to like kind of go on stage like in a uniform, and it was like so. You got to keep in mind like uh, like for like Bobby and I like we were like and Gabe everybody in the band like I mean we grew up like really like being into Devo and really being into like the Beatles and uh, like later Beatles specifically and uh-huh. so. I think it was like, hey, like this is cool. Like we'll do this, and this will be kind of funny, and uh, and then like the uniform, the furry vest became like a goggle, hot pant furry vest, reflective <laughs> thing, and like then it kind of like became like a full body suit. It just like became a thing. Not really. It wasn't like we set out to say like we're gonna be like this and wear uniforms. It kind of just like we're like fuck you. We're gonna make this joke, and then it was also like kind of in also like a, sort of like a reaction the misogyny and the kind of like you know douchey like manly shit that was happening in hardcore and punk it was like we're gonna fucking wear hot pants and we're gonna like be like kind of like these weird sci-fi nerds and be have this like sort of androgynous thing and like kind of maybe isolate or not isolate alienate uh some of that shit from our audience you know like i don't really think that like jocks who are like homophobic should be you know, stoked on our band. So fuck you. We're going to dress like this. We're going to like have this sort of like homoerotic thing and good luck, you know, in your life or whatever. And so that was like kind of, that was like our objective without really even like, you know, having like an official manifesto. It was just kind of like, let's just do this shit. And like, let's just piss some people off and, and, um, react, you know, to like the people that like don't like us in a, in a, in a, in a kind of provocative way. And so it became like a thing. And then we started wearing uniforms and whatever. And so, it was never like set out to be like, Hey, let's wear these masks so we can like hide our identity. It's just kind of like, you know, you go see a band and, and, uh, it's a visual thing as well as an audio thing, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I thought it just looks cooler, I guess, you know? And then at the time when we started wearing our uniforms with the masks, we were like setting up a lot differently. We had the drum set in the front and, um, kind of like just redefining like what you would go see what you saw us play. Um, it wasn't like set up traditionally and it was, there was no front person. Um, you know, and it was just kind of like that, I guess there was like a lot to it. It wasn't just like this thing that we were trying to like, you know, hide our identities. People, I mean, we were all in other bands. We were like, you know, all in Holy Molar or like Mm -hmm. Gabe was in cattle decapitation. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, Joey was in the shock. Like everybody had other bands. It wasn't like, Oh, no one knows who we are. You know, it was just kind of like when the locust plays, we look like this and we do this thing. And that was kind of the extent of it, mm-hmm. but it like, gave everybody an extra element to talk about. And the thing is like, we were kind of controlling that because before when people would talk about, we were like, why the fuck are you talking about our clothes? And now it's like, yeah, you should talk about our uniforms, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Here's the, re- here's, here's like, there's reason to talk about it now. So that was kind of like the whole reason for that, I guess. Okay. That makes sense. And, and, uh, you know, I know a lot of, you know, these bands that, that wear Matt say, you know, say they become someone else when they have it on. Cause no one's looking directly at them or, or seeing who they are at that moment in time. They're more of a character. Um, and that's why I asked that question because I wasn't sure. I mean, I remember the first time, I saw Locust was that time. I mean, everyone was coming to town. Everyone was going crazy at the club. Like, oh, it's family reunion. And uh, that's when, you know, uh, you guys were setting up and Gabe was up front. And I remember watching Gabe soundcheck and it was just like, holy fuck. Because, I mean, just the power and speed, just the drum soundcheck. And then once you guys all got on stage and played, it was just like, holy shit, this makes complete sense to me now. 
because <laughs> I heard the records before and I was into it. But once I saw it live and felt that that sure. aggression, it was absolutely fucking insane. And nice. uh, you know, and I see that with a lot of your projects and 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 uh, with Retox especially. How did how did the idea for Retox come around? You, you've been in so many bands. Is there a reason that you do you think that you've been in so many and a lot with the same people or, um, you know, is it just bands just uh, or people just don't get along and it ends or, um, you know, what's the story on that as far as, you know, uh, you've been in a lot of bands. So, um, well, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think like there's a lot. That's a very good. It's a very good question. I think there's a lot to it. Um, I mean, when I when I was growing up, like when I was in struggle, it's. Mm -hmm. At that time, were just like around for like one or two years, um, you know. Like, and you know, a good example, like you, you know, you brought up Aaron Montana and Mac Man. Like, I mean, they, you know, like you, you have you have Maniac Girl and you have Gut Hustle and you have. Then, if you want to think about it, like you have you know other related bands. You you know, like everyone's projects. So so like, you know, there was heroin and there was this band Slug and you know there was like a lot of that shit that that um Aaron ended up doing like the chandeliers and um you know even like Maximilian um you know went on and did like Final Conflict you know and and so like it all seemed like I don't know like interchangeable you know because um you know, we had the locust and we were like, Hey, let's put together this band, Holy Molar. Like who, like what kind of like weird thing can we do? And it wasn't even like, okay, we're going to be a real normal band. You know, we're going to be like, let's get this guy from here and this guy from over there. And we like put this thing together. And, and like, even like with, uh, I think like a sort of like, uh, equivalent kind of like concept was, was, um, probably like, uh, Headwind city, you know, it was like, we had people from different coasts and mm -hmm. it was just like a, a, a way to like kind of get together and do something. And it was, you know, it's like, I think there's like this sort of like sense of commitment to a certain band. Like, like, I mean, for lack of better, you know, whatever, like, you, you know, like the Rolling Stones, like they just were the Rolling Stones forever, you mm -hmm. know, but, but like we were all kind of growing up and like seeing like people like kind of interchange, you know, I mean, if you like the guitar player, one of the guitar players that was in struggle went on to being in Blackheart Procession. You know, most people would be like, what the fuck? Or yeah. like Jimmy Lavelle from Album Leaf was in The Locust and Crimson Curse. So like it was kind of just like this thing that everybody was able to sort of do. And 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 it, at times, I mean, it was like, yeah, fuck this. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Or I mean, occasionally like people didn't like part. It was kind of just like someone moved or – or like it just kind of ran its course, you know. I mean, um, for me growing up, it was like struggle. Like you know, Dylan moved, and then when Swing Kids played, Jose moved. So we kind of just would stop and then kind of mix it into something else. And and then you know, it wasn't like um, I have to be in forty five bands. Everyone always says like you have so many bands. It's like well, at, at one given time, I mean, I have like like even right now like. Retox and Dead Cross are my only like real functioning bands right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have like a recording project, Planet B. So it's not like I have like a lot of shit going on. Like I, I can, you know, one band I sing in, one band I play bass in, and then I have a recording project that I do other things in. So it's not like I have like this insane like list of stuff to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And even when I was like doing the Locust full time, like I was in the Locust and Some Girls and that was, that was it. You know, it was like those two bands and it was, and it kind of worked out, you know, and, and there was like a lot of like strange, 
you know, when some girls recorded Heaven is Pregnant Teens, we had Gabe play on, you know, play on our record, Gabe from the Locust. So it was, it was, it just felt like, actually Wes, I think, ended up singing on uh, a, one of the Locust songs on New Erection. So it's just, it's just like one of these things. It's like a, com- it's again, it's a community and it's like a, a, a larger thing that like everybody kind of like can inter- be intertwined with or intermingle, you know, and it's, and it's like sort of um, incestuous in some sense, I, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about like Gabe and I, like we have probably, I, I would say like 90% of everything that him and I do is like somehow linked to each other. So it's just one of those things. But, you know, and it's even like, even like Retox, it was like Gabe and I, Gabe was the original drummer of Retox. And we were like, let's start another band that's like Headwound City that we weren't doing at the time. And, you know, and like we really wanted to play with Mike Crane from the Festival of Dead Deer, you know, and so we decided to to put that band together. And, you know, and even think like Festival of Dead Deer, the drummer of the Festival of Dead Deer, Chris Hathwell, was in Moving Units, who was on 3-1-G. But Chris and I also did a single ground unicorn horn. So it's like it's just kind of like everybody works together and does stuff. And it's like, hey, we have a weekend or we have a month or we have – Hey, you want to start a band, or like, hey, you want to stop doing this band? It's it's just it was it's like loose, and it's not there's not as much pressure to like go like, all right, like we got to do this by industry standards. We're gonna be the new Rolling Stones, and we're gonna be a band for fifty years. You know, mm-hmm. like like a lot can happen in fifty years. You know, like move on. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's interesting. And having so many things like that, where music's so special, but at the same time. Being able to keep it loose like that is is a really interesting way of looking at it, I think. And and uh, we had a saying back in Alaska where I grew up is you don't lose your girlfriend, you lose your turn because there's so many more men than women. It seems kind of the same idea. Like you don't lose your band, you lose your turn and yeah. and move on to another one. And uh, it's fascinating to me. I have, you know, uh, I ask people on the show too that I've talked to that have been in bands for 20 years, like what is it like being so and so now when you know, you've always been so-and-so from high school, like the songs you wrote in high school, you're still playing now, you know, and, and, uh, it just seems crazy to me at the same time, the polar opposite being in tons of bands, um, and being able to reinvent yourself, you know, over and over again, if you want to, is, is seems really, uh, freeing. Well, I mean, I, I think like struggle, you know, like holds a time and place. Like it was really relevant to a 16 year old, in the 90, early 90s, you know, mm-hmm. but like, I, not that I don't like that or wouldn't want to play with those guys again, but like, I I wouldn't write that music anymore, you know, I mean, I, I think maybe the message and the intensity and the sincerity is there, but like the musicianship or the songwriting, I guess, and my, and the musicianship maybe, like, is just mm-hmm. not relevant, you know, and so like, I'm glad that I didn't have to stay in that band. You know, I'm glad I was able to start the Locust. I'm glad I was able to start Retox. I'm glad I'm able to like do something that like I feel is more modern and maybe more relevant to like current times. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird thing too. Like, fuck, not to keep referencing Rolling Stones because I really don't even like them. <laughs> um, but like, I always trip out like seeing them perform. For one, it's impressive because they're old and they and they still like are pretty awesome performers. But like. You know, no one like what was the last fucking record they wrote that like anyone cared about? You know, it seems weird. Like I'd be fucking bummed if I was still playing Red, White, and You from the Struggle Seven Inch. You know, (laughs) and I'm not. And this isn't even like. I mean, we're talking like 25 years, not fucking 50 years. You know, like 
it's like i don't know like i would just be like dude this fucking song again we're playing this again you know like uh i would just want to move on but if that's what everybody wants that's what you have to give them so it's it like kind of becomes more of a business or like you know i don't know like it's not necessarily as artistic as as it would be you have you have to perform these this like certain level of like what everyone's expectation get your money you know and that's mm-hmm. that's a weird thing uh when you consider art you know it seems like a, a, it seems like the wrong reason to make art yeah exactly if you're yeah because i mean it those things come naturally you know with people and the organizations that exist that that critique music and everything and they're fabricated from that i don't think uh, you know i'm sure there's people that set out to i want to win a grammy or i want to uh you know do this or that but those people that are really doing it, like you're doing it, I mean, just totally pure from the heart. I mean, even aesthetically, like I remember, like Heaven's Pregnant Teens, I remember seeing that record at Jackpot Records here in Portland, and I was like, fuck, he did it again. Like, that record spoke to me. That that cover spoke to me. I was like, wow, it's provocative. But it's very interesting, too. Like, I, like I'm I'm liking this. And I could always kind of tell and when when something would come out, and I'd be like, man, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. And uh, I always, I always love that about the stuff that you put out. Is it seems like a lot of thought went into it. Some of it seemed maybe tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it had a definite vibe. And I think uh, that's something that you've maintained through your career that I can see um, in my own, my own uh, experience with it is uh, is really admirable, and I, I it's really cool. Um, but I wanted to know too. So Dead Cross. So Dead. How? Did you get hooked up with Dave Lombardo from Slayer? And and also Mike Patton, for what I mean, that's two huge people right there. I, I agree. But you know what? It's really weird because it totally makes like complete sense and it goes right back to like all the things that we've been talking about. Because basically what happened was um Okay, so it started off with like Headwind City, we're just gonna re- record a record and um we were t- you know, we we like we're gonna do a record um which recently came out um, on Vice, but um, so so that the guys in the band were like, well, let's get a producer, and um, you know everyone's like spread out um, around, um, not in one city, and and I was kind of like, yeah, I'm down for whatever you guys want to do, and so Jordan and Cody were like, let's hire Ross Robinson, and I, I know who Ross Robinson is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've ever met him. I don't. I definitely never worked with him, and I was like, cool, all right you know, um, whatever you guys want to do, like, I'm just on board because I'm psyched that we're going to do this band. And, uh, and I, and I really am open to learning and working with other people. And so, um, you know, I did a little bit of investigation and I, and I read about Ross and I was like, fuck man, he seems like a kind of like a dick. He like, I read this article about how like he made Robert Smith, you know, like throw his candles at him and he like made the dude from corn cry and all this shit. And I was like, fuck, this is going to be, this is gonna be interesting, you know. Like uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of tripping out. Like I wonder what, I wonder how, sh- I wonder how shitty this is gonna be, um, and not really caring that much, you know. Like I, uh, whatever. So, so we, we go and we start recording with Ross, and um, it's to be completely honest, it was like life changing again. I mean, all, most of the producers that I've worked with, even like Chris Rakestraw, Alex Newport, Brent Asbury, like all those people have fucking totally shifted my 
perception of music and art. And um, again, Ross did it. And I was like, damn, this is crazy. And uh, it was not what I was expecting. I, was, I thought it was going to be, I thought we were going to be going like, you know, head to head. And it was fucking insane. I know uh, I could go on forever about that. But regardless, so anyhow, like at one point I said, like, so why, like, I thought we were going to have this issue, you know, like, why weren't we, um, why weren't we like combative or like, why weren't you like, like why you didn't even once piss any of us off? Like, you know, but he would like do crazy shit. Like we'd be tracking and he would like come in the room and like push Nick, you know, like, because he was like fucking move, you know, like get like inner, you know, like you want to like raw energy, you know, like yeah. you're like, we're trying to like play this like, you know, song that like might be complicated and he's like shoving us around. But like, <laughs> And I, and I was like, yeah, and so it really made me think. And so anyhow, we recorded, and he said, well, you know, you're not like, he's like, you're not like the guys in corn. You're not like, you know, 21-year-old rich meth addicts. You know, like, you're not like, you don't have like a label like funding your, your you know, existence. Like, you're seasoned, you know, he's like, you're not, you're not, you know, like, again, like with The Cure, he was like, you're not Robert Smith, like, tr- like desperately trying to write, you know, Boys Don't Cry. Like, he's like, you're, you're just here to do what needs to be done and he had like this weird like he was like sort of like almost too positive i felt like i was like dude this all right like i get it you really like what we're doing but fuck it's not that good you know like i don't know it was like a weird i was like all right like i was like having like a uncomfortable moment taking his compliments i was like you fucking gotta be kidding me you you definitely don't like it this much this is ridiculous but he really genuinely did and so i think we just like really hit it off and then um that record you know, happened and that was that. And and then one day I got this call from Ross and he was like, he's like, Hey man, I have this friend of mine. His daughter is like this 16 year old prodigy. Her, her like stepfather is Perry Farrell. And you know, he kind of like gave me the general rundown. And he's like, um, I need to produce her record and I would, I would, um, would love for you to play bass on it. And, um, you know, uh, the drummer is Dave Lombardo. And I was like, fuck, cool like yeah yeah like that's weird i was like okay i'm, I'm like this is sounds so wrong you know but like <laughs> that sounds perfect for me and and, and he's and i was like okay so labardo's the, the drummer i i i was like yeah i know dave like the locust and phantomos did a bunch of touring together and um you know i was like that that's cool i would i'd be psyched to fucking play with that guy he's like well what do you, do you think your dude from retox you know the guitar player would want to play guitar and i was like yeah i mean Mike Crane's like favorite band is Slayer and he's got a fucking giant Slayer tattoo on his arm and shit. I was like, I was not even asking him. I was like, yes. And I was like, you know, and I, and I kind of like still didn't really know what the music was going to sound like. And I was like, all right, you know, like go ahead and sign up Mike and I to do this. And, you know, and like, we'll, we'll go up there and, and write this, you know, these, these songs or work on these songs with this, with this woman. And so, you know, I told Mike and he was like, fuck yeah. And he was like, but this sounds like it's really weird. And like, probably bad and i was like well let's just try it you know like <laughs> worst thing can happen and you can go and talk to dave about slayer and that would be fine so we go to ross's and like record with um this girl poppy jean crawford and and she's kind of like uh, i don't know i had like this weird like nancy sinatra halloween like not like um you know like halloween like spooky vibe like kind of like a Bauhausy. I don't know. It's weird, like a PJ Harvey kind of thing going okay. on. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fucking cool. And I think that, I think Ross put together a really good band for her. Like it, like I feel like we were able to like really um, use our influences and make it sick, you know. And I was like, damn. And I, I don't really know if the songs are going to come out or if they're if what's happening with that. But um, 
but that was the you know so we went and like recorded these three tracks um or four, three or four tracks with her and um so we we're there and it was like I was like, well, how did this whole thing like come about? Like, well, how did Dave get roped into this? And so basically like what happened was Dave had booked time for um, his other band film to record with Ross and they broke up right before. And so Ross said like, instead of me charging you for the time you booked, just come and play drums on this, on this girl's, uh, you know, demo or whatever. And like, um, and that will be like the, the pay, you know, like that and what's called even, you know? And so like, so that's how Dave got roped into it. Um, okay. And, um, you know, and Mike and I got paid a little bit to, to track. And so we, we, you know, we were there and, so, and this other, like, you know, this sort of like this other like issue that I have to work on. And he's like, uh, basically like I had these shows booked for film and now the film broke up. There's this band from Mexico that's coming that needs these dates, um, that they like brought, they like booked a bunch of, they booked three dates and they had flights from Mexico and he's like, I have to fucking do something. And so Mike Crane's like, Hey, let's just put a band together. And like, <laughs> oh, it's in 12 days. Let's just put a band together and play the shows. And I was like, <laughs> you know, so then they, they talked about it and they asked me if I want to do it. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I do. But like, that sounds like a really, another like really bad idea. Like, um, also I don't live in LA, you know, I was like, okay, so I'm at the like commute. And so like, you know, I was going like back and forth. And, um, I was still working at the bar and stuff too. And so I was like, or maybe I wasn't working at the bar, but anyhow, I had to go, it was just a, it was a little rough, like driving back. And like, we had 12 days to write a whole set. And, um, they're like, we need a singer. And I was like, well, let's, let's get Gabe to sing. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, Gabe was psyched. And the whole thing was like, we thought out to be like this, we were just going to play three shows and that's it. And so, um, I think we played four or five shows. And at one point, you know, Ross had seen us play and was like, we're just going to have to get you guys back in and record. And so like Ross wasn't going to charge us um, up front. He was like, just kind of like backing the whole project since he was kind of in a way responsible for the whole thing. And he had knew, you know, he had known Gabe from Headwood city. And so, so we get back into this, into Ross's and we start working on a record and, and you know, keep in mind, like we had 12 days and we wrote seven songs and it was, and it was uh, not the best of, material we could have came up with so so we kind of were like polishing these i wouldn't say turds but we were polishing these like things that we just sort of threw together and like wrote a few more songs in the studio and um you know tracked uh the our, our album and and so um it was like coming together pretty well and gabe was tracking vocals and then gabe kind of was like oh, i gotta quit he's like this is looks like it's gonna be a full band and i have like family duties and stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna not be able to do this so we did a couple more shows with Gabe I think we played nine shows total with Gabe and then he he quit and he didn't even finish recording so he recorded like a little bit more than half of the vocals and so so when he presented like the fact that he had to quit you know Lombardo was like well we're gonna get another singer and and, and we're gonna have to re like redo all the vocals like erase all of you your vocals and just start over you know mm -hmm. Gabe's like it's cool so we were kind of like going back and forth with who do we can get to sing, and we were gonna get Travis Ryan um, from Cattle, uh, uh -huh. which which is also another like sort of you know incestuous concept. You know, um, Gabe was in Cattle Decapitation, and and Three One G put out the first two Cattle records. So I was like, oh yeah, that'll, that'll make sense. And then you know, and then so Lombardo's like, well, let's ask Patton too. Um, and again, like. You know, like there's Phantomos with the two of those guys, and then the Locust did a record with Ipecac, and Retox did a record with Ipecac. Yep. 
so I was like, oh yeah, like let's ask him too. And so like Patton was like, I'll do it. And so we kind of just were like, all right, well, there's the new band. And so Patton did the vocals. We just mastered it and it comes out August 4th and that's that, you know, but I mean, um, it's a trip because, you know, people do think like, you know, I mean, fuck, it's crazy. Like Lombardo and, and Patton are like, on another level than where Mike and I might be at on an industry standard. Mm -hmm. But there's like this, you know, sort of camaraderie between everyone where we're all equals and it, you know, and like, you know, I mean, like Patton's support of the locust and retox and his enthusiasm is, is just so overwhelming and flattering. And like, it's rad. He's like, you know, and, and it's fucking cool to be in a band with the dude like that and Lombardo as well. And, and especially like, it's funny because when the Dead Cross thing first came about, like Patton hit us up and was like, let's do the record on Ipecac, you know? So like he was already kind of like on the radar and it was just, I don't know, like the whole thing just seemed like something that was about to work. It would have worked out some way, no matter what. That is absolutely insane. Like the, and it's so cool that, I mean, the, like you said, the camaraderie there, I was going to ask you about being, you know, coming up, in the underground DIY scene and playing with people, of course, that, you know, and you know, a lot of people know, but then going to a band with two massive music forces, uh, you know, Patton quite possibly one of the best vocalists of all time. And then Dave Lombardo from massive bands like Slayer. That's so awesome that it just, it just worked out to where, you know, um, and like you said, putting those records out on, on, uh, on Ipecac and, and working with Patton before the, the other thing I wanted to know was your take on releasing music on your own label as far as, um, and, and it, this comes up from Epicac specifically. I remember Aaron from ISIS saying that, you know, they released on Epicac instead of Hydrahead because if it, if, it, how do you phrase it? If it's not good enough to release on a label, that's not our own, it's not good enough to release, um, do you have any qualms with releasing stuff on your own label? Like I know Patton releases a lot of his own stuff on Ipecac. Um, but w- would you normally seek out a different label um, to release your, your stuff? Does well, that make sense? I guess yeah, it, it does. It's a great question. There's two things I would like to say for one. I think um, would I like to release it on my own label? Yes. Um, but the reason why I wouldn't like to release it on my own label is because I don't have money. Like I couldn't, for one, like I, I couldn't like afford a lot of stuff that I would love to. Um, I mean, that's part of it. Um, the money is, is we don't have financial backing. So, mm-hmm. like, even with the Locust making the jump from GSL to Anti, that was a really hard decision for us to make. But we, d- GSL didn't have the funds to give us a proper recording budget. You know, mm-hmm. we would get like $2,000 to record and we needed like 10 or something, you know, like we needed more to really spend time in a studio. So it wasn't that we, it, it really came down to money, but it also comes down to the fact that like there has to be some sort of um, sincerity from the label. If it's not yours, it's someone else's. They have to be sincere, they have to be honest, they have to be cooperative and and willing to take a risk. And that's, that's a, I think, a, an important thing. And so, um, I think I'm, I'm assuming Patton probably has the same predicament, maybe a slightly different level because they have a bit of a budget, but they don't have a bit of a budget for like his more mainstream stuff that he does. You know sure. I mean? Like I would say like, if you want to look at the, like the, the grand scheme of labels, 3 g Nipicac might be in the same sort of like ballpark 
opposed to like, you know, capital or virgin or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, like it's, it's, a, that's, it's different at that point, you know? So, the, but another weird thing is too, like out of all ever done, the biggest royalty check I ever got or the, that the locust ever got was from Ipecac for safety second body last. And it was like a fucking one song EP, you know? Uh-huh. And it was, it was the biggest royalty check we ever got. It wasn't in the, I think to industry standards, people are probably like, that's chump change. But like to us, we're like, holy shit, it's more than a hundred bucks. You know, we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, so like, I mean, it's also the way the label runs. It's also who's on the label. I mean, I struggled with Epitaph for a while because it was like, there's so many bad bands in there, but I really think they were sincere about our bands. Um, you know, like some girls and, and, um, and retox mm-hmm. and they had, a bit of a budget where like three one G didn't have a bit of a budget, you know, had no budget. So, but the same thing is the same time, like a lot of labels, Ipecac being one of them or Epitaph or whoever, they, they're open to like the idea of branding, you know, because it, those, a lot of those releases come out where it's like Epitaph and three one G or Ipecac and three one G because it has like, it holds meaning and it holds that substance that we've been talking about mm-hmm. because it, it, it will essentially take dead cross and link that band to the get hustle. And that's important, I think to art or to, you know, I don't know, like whatever our, our, our history, I guess, or like whatever you want to call it, you know, um, it has something to do with it just, it, I don't know. It, it's like another aspect of it. That's not, pertaining to the industry, I suppose. It has something more of like a cultural value than like a monetary value. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. And and like I say, with with all the things you've done, I mean, there's a, I wouldn't want to say a theme to it, but I can, I can see the amount of work and, and, and uh, effort that went into creating it from the sonic part of it to the visual part of it to the merchandise part of it. I mean, everything about it just shows that care was taken with this and it was put out there with, you know, uh, the most, uh, the most integrity and, and, uh, that's something that, I mean, that's what keeps, you know, people like me coming back to checking out everything that you guys are doing is because it's probably going to be really good. And, uh, that, that brand is important. Like we've been talking about and, and, you know, not from even a commercial standpoint, just the brand itself. The brand could be one person just being themselves. I mean, uh, at the very basic level. And I think that's, that's really cool what you've done so far. And, and I mean, a very extensive career and now playing with two of the biggest people you've played with. I mean, that's, I mean, fantastic. It's right where you should be at this point. I would say, you know, from all you've put all the hours you've put in and everything else, of course you're on the same playing field as, as those guys, maybe not financially, but you know, musically and, and artistically hundred percent. So oh, well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really stoked on what you've done so far. And, and like I say, coming into it a little bit late, like I came into it at the locust, um, when I discovered your work and then kind of worked my way backwards and then weaving through the, the wormhole with Mac and, and Aaron and, and that whole scene that had started before any of the bands that I saw that I thought started the scene. Well, I was completely wrong. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's a huge contribution to music and, and, uh, art in general. And I really admire you for, for, you know, being yourself. Um, 
you know, and, and coming from humble beginnings in a rough time and, and turning it into something positive, even if you're not making a bunch of money, you're getting up every day doing what you want to do. And that's, that's winning right there. Sure. So, and I mean, even that, the, the sort of like wormhole that you were talking about with, with Aaron and Mac, I mean, that is a fucking brilliant wormhole to be going down. Yeah. I mean, those, those guys were so influential and just so, um, I don't know, like they just had like the best, I don't know. I'm just grateful that I was able to kind of like stumble upon their work and to be, and to be linked to it in, in ways, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was, um, just such an important thing for music. And I, I also feel like those guys don't get the recognition that they deserve, you know, and it's absolutely it's a, not. They absolutely don't. I mean, it's fucked up. I have a storage unit that's full of get hustle shit that I will probably never, ever, ever sell. Any, any arrow too. We repressed Jim's a masochism and I fucking can't sell that shit to save my life. Um, and it blows my mind because I feel like, I feel like a lot of people should know, yeah. <laughs> but they, they don't, they don't, you know, it's fantastic stuff, and I know Aaron. I think Aaron's back down in Los Angeles, but they had Dangerous Boys Club going for a while. And I mean, watching Get Hustle play live was an experience for sure. And and you know, Mac is a hundred percent his own person, and same with Aaron and 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 uh, Valentine and and all those guys. I mean, they're just yeah. a fantastic group, and it just kind of, it just kind of tied in with San Diego. Like, mean, there's just some great folks down there. And it that was what was so fun is seeing this family reunion I wasn't even a part of, but the camaraderie and the the love and the the passion about music was just and art itself was just fantastic and inspiring. You know, it carries across. And you know, uh, you know what's crazy? There's this film coming out. Um, I'm not. I don't have much information on the release date, but um, it's called Parallel Planes, and it um, it's a it's made by this woman, um, um, who's from Germany and um. Valentine's in it, um, you know, from Get Hustle uh-huh. and um, Weasel Walters in it, and um, I'm trying to think of like and like um, like Deerhoof and Ray Serrata, but then it also has like Swans and Fugazi, and so it's a trip because it's done in such a fucking rad creative way, um, but it kind of links it links that like uh, again like the whole like two tiered like um cl- kind of like classes of, of bands together it makes mm-hmm. it one one relevant thing you know and so um yeah i mean maybe keep an eye out for for that movie parallel planes it's there's a there's a there's a um there's like a trailer on youtube about it and, and it's pretty rad i mean I'm, i know the film's done it's it's like in like the it's like going to like some of the um you know, like the sh- like the films, like through the film circuit, like being shown at festivals and stuff. So, I mean, I'm assuming in like maybe a year or so, it, it'll be available for everybody to watch. But it's it's good. I, and I I'm in it a, um, a bit, and I was really flattered to be part of that um, that mix of people. You know, for sure. Yeah, and that's something. I mean, that's something special, man. That not a lot of people have that. And and uh, you know, I and my buddy Mike uh, Mike Mowry from Fight Records, I believe, is what it was called. He wanted me to tell you hi from him. He he yeah. he does the uh, podcast network I'm on, and him and I work hand in hand in there a lot. Um, and uh, I reached out to him today and told him who I was talking to, and he's like, "Oh, tell him Fight says hi." Right. So, <laughs> he knows everybody, I guess. I yeah. we reached out to Mike Patton's people today to try to get him on the show, and I don't know if that'll happen. But and uh, Aaron too, I'd love to have him on and talk about the the old days too. And, uh, 
you know, he's got quite a story to tell and, and, uh, sure. shit, man. Well, well, Justin, I really appreciate you coming on, dude. I'll let you get back to your day and, and sorry again about the mix up on the time, but I really oh, had a okay. good time, man. Really had a good yeah, time. Too. Me too. Thank you so much. You're welcome, man. And, uh, I'll shoot you, I'll shoot you an email or, uh, when it, when it comes out and, uh, you know, be a, probably a week or two, uh, before it airs. And then, uh, yeah, just definitely keep doing what you're doing, man. It's really important. So, uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, man. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That was my conversation with Justin Pearson from Retox, Dead Cross, and 31G Records. Don't forget The Locust and about 50 other bands. He is a man of mystery, a man of a thousand bands. Anyway, uh, Justin was great. We had a great chat. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, Definitely check out the podcast on purepleasurepodcast.com. You can check out Justin's work at 31g.com. And they also have some stuff coming out on Epicac as well. Uh, Retox and uh, Dead Cross coming out on Epicac on August 4th. Anyways, so uh, when you're done checking that out, check us out on Twitter uh, at purepleasurepod and uh, at Instagram at purepleasurepod and also purepleasurepod at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think rate and subscribe to the show um definitely those ratings help us out so keep those coming keep the emails coming i'm loving the feedback the specific feedback on episodes and and uh definitely shoot me people you want to hear uh i've been able to accommodate that a few times now for people that have requested uh some guests on the show which has been really awesome so uh shout out to bob for the show notes bob and katie show uh check them out he's been doing our show notes every week doing a fantastic job and uh, Joe, our new producer, doing a great job cutting the episodes up and, and making them sound beautiful. So anyways, definitely take care and we'll see you on the radio. Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com.